pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well, here we are again, and it's a great day for hanging out with my brother Patrick and me. We're the Constitution Commanders, and today, the conversation is going to be a little more laid back than usual. So go ahead and prop your feet up, get comfortable, and we'll get this show started. I just watched a really cool documentary. I was going to tell you about it. It was about something that happened back in World War II. There's very little known about, if anything. I didn't know anything about it until I saw the documentary, actually. But there was, um, well, you know, Germany is the one that started the U-boat, right? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> apparently, and I didn't know this either, they were quite effective for quite some time, they, according to this documentary, the German U-boat sunk over 740 ships, I believe it was. And, <clears throat> and uh, they actually got really, really close to our borders, a lot closer than anybody I think knows about because I did, I mean, I had no clue that Germany was even, even close to the United States until just now. Yeah. So right after Pearl Harbor, Germany found an opportunity to get real close to us, and they started hitting the Atlantic shores, even sent spies into the United States to start blowing up bridges and, you know, you know how it works, killing supply lines and things like that. Yeah. Well, they moved pretty quick because, at the, you know, up to this point, up to Pearl Harbor, we were not involved at all, and England's pretty much standing by themselves against the entire – you're all the other European countries, but especially Germany. And uh, however, we were supplying them with munitions and other supplies, which Germany managed to cut off or did. Well, there's there is a misconception about that. <clears throat> you know, people want to say that we weren't involved in World War Two until Pearl Harbor. But in well, all actuality, in all actuality, heck, we had uh naval aviators or air force aviators that were flying missions with canada and with england mm -hmm. so we had already loaned out our soldiers or well airmen pilots right to go over there and help and you know well, i don't we were know supplying england with a lot of a lot of munitions and supplies and so yeah. you know with our munitions are going to come warm bodies so yeah but we weren't actually directly involved it you know as far as the fighting goes but we were helping some way or another because i mean you know canada and england are supposed to be allies and so we're helping them out in some way yeah <clears throat> but it came down to this very interesting story about u-166 are you familiar with that submarine no i wasn't either it actually made it all the way into the Gulf of Mexico, which once Pearl Harbor was bombed, you know, to Germany's credit, they've got a, a lot of very intelligent people over there, especially, you know, in, you know, battlefield type things, war commanders and their scientists were quite intelligent. 
Uh, well, yeah, welcome NASA. I mean, there you go. <laughs> Operation Paperclip, Mockingbird. Oh, uh, this goes on and Ultra. on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thank you, Germany. <clears throat> right. But, um, but, but they were very smart. And um, when Pearl Harbor was bombed, their U-boat commander, Germany's U-boat commander, knew that, you know, England was receiving a lot of their supplies from us. And they also knew that they were coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. So what did they do? Hey, we're going to cut the supply line right where it starts. Smart move, especially since we were moving so freely because there are no U-boats in the Gulf of Mexico. Well, Germany said, what makes us stop that? So they did. They sent, a U, they sent U-166 there. And the very first, um, I guess it was, it was like a cargo ship dubbed as a passenger ship. Yeah. Just happened to be the, uh, what was it, the USS Robert E. Lee. You remember hearing about that ship? Yep. I remember it being sunk. I didn't remember how, but it was U-166 that sunk it. In the Gulf of Mexico, not far, you know, it's probably 100 miles, 150 miles from home of Louisiana, right? Huh. Well, the, what do they call it, the escort was a battleship, which just happened to be the P-566, I believe was this uh, designator. And uh, as soon as the Robert E. Lee was hit by one of the torpedoes from the U-166, the uh, escort ship made a very, very sharp turn. Something else I did not know about U-boats is that they are very limited with their periscopes and how what angle they can actually turn to see you know they've yep. got a very limited field of view and apparently this lieutenant commander that was on the that was in charge of this uh p566 he knew that and so he made a break from the robert e lee and made a very wide turn obviously to get back around to the submarine that attacked the robert e lee long and short of it is he dropped two rounds of depth charges and in his report he in his report it shows that he had dropped the two rounds of depth charges he saw uh basically an oil slick at the top of the water and some debris yeah and so it kind of signifies a cop when a hit sounds good doesn't it yeah well, the Navy didn't think so. As a matter of fact, they removed him from his command and sent him back to school. Uh. Yeah, because they said that he didn't, you know, that he didn't drop his depth charge or set the depth correctly on him. I mean, it was just, it was incredible what the Navy did to him. And yeah. uh, anyway, as it turns out, I think it was about a month or two later, there was a Coast Guard uh patrol out that was they had spotted another u-boat and apparently had dropped depth charges and the same report all slick and debris well they got credit for taking out the u66 u166 uh when the other vessel did it the other vessel did it and and now there's this is a couple of months difference between you know when these two incidents happened but you know, I guess they were more ready to believe the Coast Guard report than this lieutenant commander who was over this, you know, battleship. And as it turns out, 
all these divers they sent out looking for the ones you go in 66 from the coast guard report they couldn't find it it was nowhere there was no debris of any kind not just a submarine but it wasn't the u-166 there was no submarines anywhere in that area and um as it turns out 70 years later there was some geologists doing some research fixing to do some uh, undersea pipelines for for gas lines right yeah <laughs> there's some uh i guess we're drilling and um lo and behold they come across this image on their graphic it was an outline of a submarine in the gulf of mexico and uh so the geologists you know turned it over to whoever was they turned it over to and it turns out that this guy that does a lot of these um what do you call them the not scavengers the researchers i mean they just go yeah, out and look uh, for debris and recovery parties uh mm-hmm. yeah they're they're historians more or less but a lot of what they do is deep sea look you know searches mm-hmm. So this report got to them, and sure enough, they go and investigate what these geologists found, and lo and behold, they find a submarine for sure. And it's really interesting, the science stuff that they did, but as it turns out, the uh, submarine, the entire bow of the submarine is severed from the rest of the submarine, and it's about 100 meters apart, you know, from where the separations were 100 meters apart. So they couldn't actually determine why the bow was separated. There must have been somebody else involved with taking this U-boat out. Not the case. The conclusion of their investigation, and by the way, when they took these pictures, the submarine is two miles deep. Okay? Yeah. And they are using some very, very high-tech equipment. But they, the equipment they used... It didn't really scan, but it took pictures, and it would only take pictures one every one picture every thirty seconds as it's traveling above the submarine. So there were thousands and thousands of these pictures. It took several months to reassemble, but <laughs> one of the um, U-boat experts told the lady when she got it to go. He said, "Wait a minute, this is some real CSI stuff, <laughs> you know?" Because I mean, she's got a basically a panorama of this u-boat yeah like she took it from the air and there was no water between the camera and the u-boat it really interesting so what they determined was that when this lieutenant commander had turned the battleship to follow the periscope that was spotted by one of his men and they started releasing depth charges he did everything absolutely correct Oh, and by the way, it was one thing I wanted to tell you too. The guy on this that heads up this research team that went and investigated what the geologists found, he is also a Navy commander himself. So he understands how a lot of this stuff works. Yeah, tactics and stuff. <clears throat> yeah. Right. What they concluded in their investigation was when this lieutenant commander began dropping depth charges, the depths were all set right, which concluded that the Navy's assumption, which is what it was, was wrong. And that not only were his depth charges set right, one of those depth charges landed on the submarine, on the bow of the submarine. And the submarine carried its, basically sunk to its own death because it was carrying a depth charge. And once it reached the depth that it was supposed to detonate, yeah, it went off right above the missiles that they had just loaded in the 
bow of the ship. And that explains the severing of the bow and all that good stuff. It was a really cool documentary. Now here's the coolest part. I wanted to tell you because when I found out this part, I was like, whoa, really? You know who the Secretary of the Navy was or is or whatever? No, at, at the time of this filming? No. Do you remember Governor Ray Mabus? <laughs> oh, gosh. <Yeah. laughs> I saw that. I said, oh, Lord of mercy. He was really Secretary of the Navy. <laughs> well, he kind of goes to explain That explains a, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but the documentary was good all in all. And the Navy overturned their decision from 70 years prior. And the lieutenant commander, you can imagine he was pretty well upset to his yeah. death because that was taken away. I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, I don't care if you're a commander or not. Can you imagine the crew? You know, yeah. I mean, that's just crazy. But anyway, he had two children and, uh, well, two children in his lifetime. His daughter was probably four or five at the time, and his son was born a month after he sunk that U-boat. And his son just happens to be the only living child or relative of this lieutenant commander. And he received the appropriate medal. Was it one Valor? I forget what it's called now. Navy Cross. No, it wasn't the Navy Cross. And anyway. But it, whatever it, it was. Whatever it was. It, medal. it was an appropriate medal. It was a wartime medal. And, um, you know, of course, that Lieutenant Commander's son is now 70-something years old, almost 80. So, you know, that had to, I mean, that, I don't know how he refrained from just losing it emotionally because, I mean, that would, that would be a, that, that's something his dad should have gotten for sure. But just the fact that it was finally overturned and awarded to the right people was great. Yeah. Um, but anyway. No, not to not to mention his dad had to go to jail for it. Well, pretty much. I mean, they, they just took him from his, you know, they stripped him of his command and sent him back to school like he was. Oh, okay. He didn't go to jail. Yeah. No, he didn't go to jail. They just said that his report didn't make sense. It said, you know, they listed, you know, four of the Navy's findings was that he did everything wrong. Yeah. And he didn't do everything. Even this researcher, when they concluded how the sub got sunk, and that the lieutenant commander's report was accurate. I mean, he's sitting here looking at it and shaking his head. He said, man, I couldn't have done that any better myself, you know? Yeah. So, you know, for him, that's a big deal that he got the Department of the Navy to turn their decision. <laughs> but anyway, <clears throat> I thought that was, a, that was an incredible documentary. I really didn't even want to watch it. <laughs> but yeah, I've, I've never really gotten too fascinated with any of the naval stuff. Uh, you know, I enjoyed when Kent was in uh, mm -hmm. Virginia Beach and we'd go out there and had the opportunity to tour his minesweeper because that was one of the coolest vessels. I think even at that time, it was one of the last remaining wooden vessels in the Navy. It was the last remaining. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, I, I, I can appreciate the Navy, uh, you know, and I even... I well, you said if it wasn't it. for the big water, you'd have gone in the Navy. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that was, that was my thing. That was why, you know, and I can't believe I tried to go in the Marines back in, what was that, 87, 88, or 88, 89? Yeah, 88, 89. Well, see, yeah, I tried to go in the uh, What was the, the first one? 
Operation Desert Storm or Iraqi. No, I mean, uh, I where they went I, into Kuwait. I don't even remember the name Kuwait. of it. That would have been. That's the one we did the benefit show for. Or yeah, but, to do the benefit show. That was. Uh, I can't remember. There's four of them. There's Desert Storm. Then there's Iraqi well, Freedom. Nah, that would, nah, it was the first one back in. But anyway, I tried to go in the Marine Corps then, and little did I know that. Well, I mean, I knew the Marines traveled with the Navy, but. I'm like, well, damn, what difference does it make, Navy or Marines, you know? I mean, you're still on right. a damn boat in the middle of the big ocean. And that's why later when I decided to go in after college, I was like, eh, Marines and Navy out of the question. Army, I'm a ground pounder. <laughs> yeah, when you told me what you were doing in the Army, I was like, oh, I thought you were afraid of the big water. You know you're going to wind up there eventually. <laughs> yeah, but if I did, it'd be over it, not in it. <laughs> I mean, if, if I went down, if if the Air Force, well, you can't put much into the quality of Air Force equipment either, but right. uh, if, if you go down while you're flying over the big water, chances are you're not going to have to worry about shark attacks. You're probably going to be dead on impact. So that's a, that was a comfort in itself. <laughs> well, yeah, I can see that. But, it, you know, I tried to go in the Marine Corps first. I don't remember why I didn't go in the Marine Corps. No, the bastards my... rejected me. I mean, they said that because I had, a, you know, that, that old stupid question. I know the Navy asked y'all. It has to be the same time of questionnaire. Have you had a head injury within oh, right. the last three years of your enlistment? Well, you were well within that, that range. Well, no, not really. I mean, I knew I had the concussion, but could I remember the date? I mean, I was like, you know, I mean, you're talking on out a bit. I'm like, yeah. what day was it that I had it? And I'm sitting there. I just said no. Because it, it was, it had right. to have been close to three years, but I thought it was over three years. I'm like, no, I hadn't had one. And that was when I was supposed to ship out. And they came and told me that you lied on your application and this, that, and the other. And, you know, you, yeah, you're not going. Yeah. And I was like, well, so from then on, well, actually, until I had to withdraw from college, heck, I was, I was so angry at the military. I was like, fuck the military. I ain't never going in the military. Those bastards rejected me because of something they said I lied on, you know, fuck them. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, sure as heck, I go into the army, but I guess when you have a kid on the way and you're two semesters shy of a double major and you ain't got a pot to piss in really living in a little 600 square foot efficiency, you kind of got to do something. Right. You got to do something. Well, you know, I was, I was really disgruntled with first. Well, first time. The third time I tried to go in the Navy was the first time I actually made it to depth. And uh, 4 o'clock, 4.30 in the morning, I'm sitting out on the front stoop waiting on my ride to MEP so I could go to boot camp. And sure enough, my recruiter showed up with the, the chief from the recruiter office and then a senior chief from the federal building. I think I told you about him that wanted me to go nuclear as soon as he said something to me about it i said man navy cannot pay me enough to go in the dark not going nuclear and i ended up botching a test on purpose because i didn't want him putting me in nuclear you know and um as a matter of fact at that time the job that i had of course uh army marines call it an mos but you know i think the navy is a rate but anyway i was going in as a strategic weapons systems electronics technician and i volunteered for sub duty like a moron yeah. but um yeah when they showed up at the house they said um 
they handed me this brown envelope and said, have a nice life. You've been given a section six discharge. I said, what the hell's a section six? They said, it's all in the paperwork. And they turned around and walked off. And they're supposed to be taking me to Mets like right now, not later. They, is, there was no time to, you know, do anything really. So, and this was when uh, Kent was, uh, he was in St. Paul then. Yeah. And the only time I think I've ever called Kent, to be honest, but uh, I called, I called the base and I asked Kent, I said, what is a section six discharge? He said, don't you mean a section eight? I said, don't you have to be in the service to get a section eight? And he said, well, I'll have, he said, I'll, I'll check into it and I'll have my secretary call you back. And his secretary called me back and informed me there is no such thing as a section six discharge, which I kind of already assumed, but I wasn't actually in yet. I mean, yes, I had gone sworn in and all that, but yeah. You know, how do you get discharged from something that you're not in? That was, yeah, that was my question. And then, um, you know, when, when it came back that there's no such thing as a section six discharge, I went back up to the federal building in that senior chief's office. Did you ever get your draft card, by the way? Who, me? When, yeah, when you got your license or turned 18, did you get your draft card? If I did, I probably threw it away. I don't know. I mean, oh, I, I know I signed up for selective service. Well, I knew I signed up for selective service, but I also remember, you know, I mean, like I said, it was probably because it, it was, dude, I wasn't even out of. I hadn't completed my GED very long when I tried to go in the Marine Corps, you know, right. they didn't want me. So I said, well, I guess the government don't want me. And I, if I had it, I got rid of it. I well, mean, yeah, I definitely got rid of mine because I went back up to the federal building and I went to go see the senior chief and I tore up that draft card and I threw it on his desk. And I said, you sons of bitches ever call me about anything. You just better have a door waiting for me at Leavenworth. And, uh, man. I was hot, but then when I did finally go in, the reason I went in <laughs> was dad kept telling me for about a year that I had all these recruiter cards coming from the Navy. And every time they come in, he says, what do you want me to do with it? Throw it in file 13 where it belongs. And, you know, at this time I'm, you know, I had my own roofing business and I guess I was at dad's house one day. I don't remember how he told me, but. Either way it goes, he had told me that you were coming back to Mississippi to handle some business so that you could get in the Army. I said, now, how in the world is he getting in the Army? And, of course, I was thinking, you know, our ages at the time, I was thinking, that's a little late to be going in, isn't it? And, uh, but when I found, when I asked Dad, I said, how's he doing? And he explained it to me, and I said, well, uh, if he gets that taken care of, let me know. And then if another one of those recruiting cars comes in after that, let me know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So when I found out that you were successful in your endeavors and you were shipping out to boot camp, you know, remember at this time we didn't have cell phones, right? It was the pagers then. And I'm I didn't working... ever even have a pager. It was just a well, good the only... memory with a lot of phone numbers in it, a pocket full of quarters for the damn cell phone. I mean, for the pay phone. <laughs> Exactly. Actually, it wasn't even quarters back then. I think it was dimes. dimes. Yep. Oh, we better stop. We're dating ourselves bad here. Well, it seems like it. It hadn't been that long ago. <laughs> but um, I'm on a roof out and it's actually past Raymond, not quite to Utica. 
but the closest payphone was about four or five miles away. And uh, my pager goes off and it's dad. And I said, he don't ever call me for anything unless it's important. So I guess I better go find out what it is, right? So I left the crew on the job and I drove into Utica to one little gas station. It was actually a truck stop. Called. And anyway, I asked dad what was going on. He said, you got another one of those recruiter cards. What do you want me to do with it? And I said, file 13. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> I went back to the job and I told the crew, I said, look, guys, I said, I've got to leave the rest of the afternoon. Y'all know what to do. Make sure you clean up. I'll see y'all in the morning. I drove straight to the recruiter's office. And when I walked in, one of the, the there was only one recruiter there. And that was the chief or yeah, the chief of the recruiting office. All the other recruiters, one, one was on vacation. That was supposed to be my recruiter. The rest of them were on lunch break. But I knew the chief because he was an E5 the last time I tried to go in. So when I walked in, I told him who I was. Uh, and he said, well, what can I do for you? I said, go ahead and get your paperwork out. Let's go ahead and start getting paperwork done. I said, I won't be on the floor by the end of the week. And uh, I don't want you guys to come and pick me up to go to MAPS. I think I'll get there on my own. I don't want to hear anything from anybody in this office except good luck when I leave and congratulations when I get back. I said, anything other than that, I will fight you all the way to the Supreme Court. If you deny my rights again to serve my country, I will fight it tooth and nail. He said, are you crazy? I said, that reminds me, sign me up for the SEALs. <laughs> and that's how I ended up finally going in. And if you hadn't gone in, I probably wouldn't have never gone in. You know? Man. Yeah, I just wish I would gotten further than I gotten. That's all. Well, you know, some things we just can't help. Hey, you remember Robert Brown, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, Robert, if you listen to this, what's up, buddy? But uh, <laughs> I ran into him right after I got in that time. You know, I was actually on the floor, sworn in, everything before my recruiter came back from, from his vacation. I didn't even know who my recruiter was until after I was in. And um, I saw Robert, and we got to talking. And you know Robert did go in the SEALs, right? Well, he, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, he broke the jaw he, of one of his instructors. That's why he got out Actually, of that didn't happen. I don't know who told you that. Because I, I asked Robert about that. He said, that ain't what happened. And I said, well, I thought that's why you got rocked out of SEALs. He said, man, let me tell you something. That program is hard. And I said, well, yeah, it's supposed to be. And, you know, we had a conversation about SEALs. And uh, I told him, cause he told me he just rocked out. He rung the bell. And I was like, Robert. Really? I know the program's hard, man, but if, if I knew anybody in my lifetime that could have made a seal, yeah, man, Robert. Yeah, I mean, and he he said the same thing about me. I said, You're delusional. Something happened to you while you were in buds. <laughs> but uh, but um, I mean, I didn't know. I don't think anybody really knows until you get there, you know. But I wanted the opportunity to at least fail. I mean, if I if I was there, I had the opportunity to do one of two things, right? Pass or fail. That's it. And as it turns out, Robert did rock out, but he rocked out in Hell Week. Yeah. And he um he had some um he had medical issues going up. I don't remember if it was a 
you know, he had suffered some broken bone or he was sick. I don't remember exactly what he said, but his option was to either roll back to the class coming in or leave. And, yeah. you know, going back to that other class, man, you've already done this crap for five weeks and you're going to rock back. No, I don't think so. <laughs> It's a yeah. one-shot deal for me. I'm not doing it twice, <laughs> you know. Well, I'm asking. But, I was like me in jump school. You know, I mean, everybody, you know, right. keep talking about, oh, you got a higher level of standards you got to have for PT and all this stuff. And that's right. As as I'm going through basic, I'm all pumped up because our battalion sergeant major he asked who was all going airborne because he had. 82nd combat patches and shit like that and he was a master blaster and i was like he even had the mustard stain so he jumped oh he was hard for him and uh he asked uh he it was only like maybe five or six of us out of our whole basic training battalion that went airborne and the whole time i'm thinking oh man it's gonna be my first bit of difficult training you know that's what i'm thinking i'm like oh man airborne's gonna be rough and right got through AIT and I mean I'm I'm already blowing I didn't have to do anything extra I mean hell I'm even living off post because my wife was with me and my kid was born but I'm like I'm already surpassing the airborne physical fitness standards so I'm like okay well I mean if it's hard I mean maybe I need to train a little harder because this is easy so far and I get to airborne school and you know I mean the only difference was that your PT uniform was back then BDUs and that was, I mean, we wore tennis shoes, but it was BDUs and your brown shirt. You know, that was, that was your right. PT uniform. And then your ballistic helmet, everywhere you went, you had that damn ballistic helmet on. And, and you didn't wear tennis uh, shoes either. <laughs> but, uh, actually, no, we wore our combat boots. It wasn't even yeah. tennis shoes. It was combat boots. And, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I'm sitting there going through jump school. I'm like, man, this is nothing like I had imagined, you know, it's. I said, well, I'm going to get Ranger one day, you know, and then I'm going to get SF. Mm-hmm. And Which was but, your goal when you went in, if I remember correctly. because it, Yeah, that's what, yeah. that's what we signed up for was uh, Airborne Ranger and Special Forces. Yeah. And, uh, well, well, when I was in AIT, they told me, they told me point blank. They said, bad news, you know, because they knew my contract. They said, uh, Ranger just put a hold on all comms. You know, no communications are available or can go into Ranger school. Right. And, uh so I was kind of bummed out on that, but I got the AIT, I mean, uh, airborne and before you have jump week, which is the third week, you know, you got a uh, swing landing trainer in the second week. And what the swing, swing landing trainer is, is you're standing on this platform. It's kind of like a catwalk. I mean, you stand on a platform, it's probably 10 foot in the air something like that. I don't know, 10, 12 foot. Right. And, uh, probably about 10, you stand on that and you're in a harness and it's hooked to a rope and you got a sergeant airborne or a black hat down in a sawdust pit and he's holding the other end of the rope which is routed around a pulley well they tell you to you know you're going to actually you have to go through a prepare to land that's how you have to hold yourself and that basically is like feet and knees together elbows in and your hands over your simulated reserve parachute and then they tell you to well, they say, you know, I don't remember if they told you to jump or whatever. But anyway, you're swinging on a fucking rope. You don't ever know when this damn Sergeant Airborne is going to release the rope. And they'll tell you, do a, you know, a front right or front left or a 
rear left or a rear right PLF or parachute landing fall. Okay. Well, the stipulation they tell you when you go in there is if you hit your head three times on the sawdust, you get recycled. They call you a headbanger. Headbanger. I'm sitting there thinking, I am a headbanger. Hey, you are. Heavy metal. I'm all about <laughs> headbanging before I got here. I'll be headbanging long after I'm gone. You know? That's right. <laughs> well, I do my PLFs and this one PLF, I can't remember which one. It was one of my rear PLFs. And uh, I had no idea. I mean, I didn't even realize my head hit the sawdust. I mean, I, I got a hard head anyway. I, I had no idea. Mm. And uh, he said, Airborne Williams, go back to the back of the line, do it again. Well, I did this. And on the third time, they said, Airborne Williams, you were recycled. <laughs> I oh. said, what the fuck? They said, you hit your head. I'm like, I, and I'm, I'm arguing with Sergeant Airborne. I said, no, I, no, Sergeant Airborne. My head never hit that sawdust. I mean, he's sitting there watching me. <laughs> But I never felt it. I, I, I literally, right. I didn't feel it. I mean, I, I could have argued till the cows came home. I mean, they, the, only way, the well, only way they could have really proved, proven it to me was, you know, to show me video evidence. Because I'm like, I swore. I mean, I, I didn't hit my head. Not once, not much less three times. You know, I mean, I, sure. but anyway, well, I got recycled and, you know, it broke my heart. You know, I was sitting there thinking, man, I'm a, I'm a pogue, you know, I mean, everybody else is getting through this son of a gun first go around. It's only a three-week school, you know, and mm-hmm. I got to I got to go four weeks to finish three-week school. You know, I felt kind of like a Marine at the time, you know. It takes him three months to do what the Army does in two. And uh, <laughs> I'm sitting here, man, my first sergeant, he pulled me into his office. He gave me a pep talk. He said, man, you know how many times I went through RIP before I got my Ranger tab? I, I was like, no, Sergeant Airborne. He said, he said, I went through four times on my fifth time I made it. He said, you'll be a fine wow. paratrooper. He said, don't give up. And, uh, cause I was heartbroken, dude. I was heartbroken. I was like, man, this is the end of oh, my yeah. special operation. I ain't even, I'm not even tabbed yet. And I'm sitting here getting ready to get washed out, you know? And, uh, but I, I did, I made it through. It took me an extra week, which sucked. The only good thing about it was when you wash out in airborne school, you don't have to repeat the entire cycle again. You just have, like I washed out in the second week, right at the end of the second week. So right. when they when they recycled me, I basically started in the second week of the next class. So you, you didn't know? actually go all the way back. No, and then uh, then we had you know jump week, which which that was, I mean I I fully enjoyed the hell out of that anyway. But hell, I wasn't even supposed to be in jump school physically. I mean because they I tore all my ligaments loose before I went in, and they gave me one of those lace up boots to wear, a brace, and one of the policies for all candidates in airborne school was you couldn't have any physical injuries and you couldn't have any uh physical aided equipment you know and uh, they said no braces no nothing well i just never told them i mean i always put it on in my barracks room i always had my boots on i walked like it didn't hurt i ran like it didn't hurt everywhere you go you do a double time so physically i made it four weeks on something i shouldn't have even been in and then when i finished i was like man that was a lot easier than i thought and uh right. so that's partially why i signed up i mean because i got to go to all your high-speed schools you know and they were like you want to go to combat life taker which really getting that high speed sure but i knew it'd get me iv bags so i was like hell yeah man because i party a lot you know i could always use an iv <laughs> well wait a minute then, didn't you get your aren't you a board certified emt yeah i was yeah because after yeah. combat life taker i went to emt school and uh and then right after emt school 
I was deployed. They came back while we're in the field. They said, get your shit together. You know, right. uh, you're, you're in for the next, uh, next class of air assault. I'm like, hell yeah, man. I'm like, I'm, I'm in the field. The day I get back from the field, I have to report for air assault. Uh, well, actually there was an air assault, uh, fit, physical fitness test that you had to take. Mm-hmm. And there was only two of us in the battalion that scored the highest scores. And we were the only two that got to go out of a battalion. And both of them happened to be in my company, me and one other guy, Sergeant Ortiz, which was specialist Ortiz at the time. And, uh, but yeah, we got into aerosol and that was, that was a lot more difficult than, uh, airborne school. That was, a yeah. It, that, that yeah, air assault is a lot different from airborne, and I had no idea what the difference was until I got in the army. But uh, yeah, that's now, not air a... assault. Well, they have a thing called zero day. Zero day is you spend probably about eight to ten hours, the entire eight to ten hours. If you're not on an obstacle on the obstacle course, then you're doing PT. You, there is mm-hmm. no stopping, and they don't give you your two mile run until the very end. And I was sitting there thinking, thank God the two mile is the last event for this damn zero day, you know, because that's my easy, that's my best thing. I can run like nobody's business. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm usually running high 11s, low 12s, you know, on my two mile. Yeah. And, uh, man, I got into this damn, that zero day about halfway through the day, man, I was so dehydrated. I mean, I, I'd been, I'd been dehydrated. I, I mean, it was just this arduous. And my lips cracked open and started bleeding. I mean, I was about to pass out. Oh, I mean, it was, it, it, was, it was hard. But I got to the two-mile run, and you had an 18-minute cutoff time. You had to run your two miles in 18 minutes. I'm sitting there thinking, 18 minutes, man. I didn't walk off. that. <laughs> yeah, man. I get out there. I think I come in at, like, 17-something. I was like, holy shit. I yeah, was, you didn't realize how burnt you were. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was smoked, dude. I was absolutely destroyed. And then they had shooting aerosol. We had three, uh, three combat load ruck marches, you know, forced rucks that we had to do. And it was all deep sand. So you might as well be on the beach. And I think it was a 5K, a 10K, and then a 20K. And they were one day, next day, the day after that. And you had, man, I, I don't, I don't care what kind of shape you were in. You had to yep. run the whole thing. You had to, there was no, and if you didn't hold your weapon at the ready the entire time, your ass was getting, oh man, you're in trouble. Oh man, you're, you're that's, trouble. A, that's a butt kicker right there. Don't seem yes. like much. When you first grab that M16, oh, that's all it is. But yeah, go ahead and say that's all it is at the end of about five miles. <laughs> yeah, but. Yeah, that was a that was a very 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 hard class, and uh, it was a lot more physically demanding than airborne school. And after that, you know, I'd gotten to the point where I was like, you know, I was still waiting on a slot for Ranger to go to Rip, but then, mm-hmm. you know, I, I knew they hadn't lifted the hold for Camo yet, so I was sitting there like, all right, well, I'm gonna start training. So whenever I wasn't deployed, man, I would load my Alice pack up on weekends. And I would, I'd walk all of Fort Bragg, dude. I mean, that's what I did. That's a lot of walking. Like, I was like, well, I said, special forces come around. I'm not going to be out of shape. You know, I'm going to just get myself beefed up. If I ever get the opportunity, I'm going and I'm not going to be out of shape. So, but. Man, well, that's kind of the way I, I did before I went because uh, 
course, you know, my first contract, I was, I, I didn't find this out until later, but the division that I was going to be in boot camp was going to be one of the last ones that could leave boot camp and go straight to Coronado. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I finally did meet my recruiter, <laughs> he knew I was going to SEALs and, uh, he gave me something at the recruiter's office called a SEAL op order. And basically it was just a workout guide, you know, yeah. and, uh, a lot of what was in it was, you know, pyramid style workouts. And, you know, I started doing that before I went into boot camp. And I think, I think I got to where I was doing my sit-ups and push-ups. I was pyramiding up to about 15, which doesn't sound like a lot. You do one push-up. Yeah, but when you do, yeah, and then, then, then two push-ups. Push right. Then three, all the way up to 15. Then you come back, you do 15, 14, 13. That's oh, it's it. a lot of push-ups, yeah. yeah. It's a lot of push-ups. <laughs> a lot of sit-ups, too. And, but I was, you know, really, uh, when I was going through that workout regimen that was in the seal op order, I, was, I wasn't really trying to prepare for seals because I'm thinking, man, at my age right now, I can't be, you know, I can't be running near as fast as I did in high school when I was running track. I can't, you know, probably on, you know, a little bit out of shape, all things considered, because, you know, you get older, your body starts breaking down and nothing you do about it. And um, so I was just, I had it in my head that I'm going to do as much as I can in that, you know, in that workout regimen until I got to boot camp, because I was just bound to determine that those 17 and 18 year olds were not going to outperform me. And um, that was the only thing on my mind. And when we did our first PRT, I maxed out push-ups. And I didn't max out push-ups for my age group. I maxed out push-ups, period, no. for any age group. I mean, my first PRT, I did, you know, I did 100 push-ups, and I think I did 120 sit-ups. And I ended up running a mile and a half in nine minutes and six seconds. And... I was really quite amazed at myself, but I didn't realize that doing all that roofing did keep me in shape a lot better than I thought it did. And, um, you know, I hated when they killed my seal contract. That's what I was going to tell you earlier when I met my recruiter. It was to get that seal op order. And the next time I talked to him, it was, I want to say in October, same year you went in and, uh, he told me I needed to come down to MEPS and meet him down there. I said, for what? I said, everything's done. He said, well, just meet me down at MEPS. I need to talk to you about some paperwork we got down here. I said, okay. And when I get down there, they walk me in this liaison's office, and the liaison holds up a stack of papers. He said, you know what this is, son? I said, that looks like my contract. He said, it is. And he turned around and turned the on button on the shredder and dropped my paperwork in there. And I was like, oh my god and i don't know if you noticed when i went when i did go down to meds at this time i made all the way through physical everything what i call the interrogation room you remember all that garbage right i made it all the way to the doctor where he gives you the final nod right yeah he said well you passed everything with flying colors but i'm gonna have to pdq you and i said what are you gonna do to me pretty damn quick he said, no, that's permanently disqualified. I said, for what? And man, you want to talk about tears coming out of my eyes. This is my fourth attempt to get into the military. And he told me loss of limb. 
uh, your little finger knuckle. My middle finger. I looked up. I stood up and I said, I am fully intact. What are you talking about? He said, no, the tip of your right middle finger, I believe it is. And when he said that, yes, I showed it to him. And I said, first of all, Doc, if I were right-handed, this isn't even my trigger finger. And I'm going in the Navy and it can still push buttons. I said, you could find a waiver for everything else. You better find one for this or create one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was dead serious too. He found me a waiver. But when my recruiter had me meet him at MEPS and they shredded my contract, man, I, you don't, I don't know how many times you can be told you can't go for whatever reason before you finally just give up. But I wasn't giving up then. But they gave me the option to talk to this lieutenant commander, and I'll never forget his name. And I hope one day that when I'm in Mobile, if he's there, I would love to run into him so I can jack his jaw. Because he told me I had to do a phone interview with him before I could go in. And if he gave me the nod, I could go in anyway. If he did not, then I was not going in the Navy. So for 20 minutes, we talk about roofing. And finally, he asked me, he says, so um, look, I can go ahead and put you in the Navy. He said, uh, but I'm going to make you an AT. I said, okay, whatever, you know. I said, the only thing I want to know is this, Commander. I said, am I going to have the opportunity to be a SEAL? Can I still go to SEALs with whatever AT is? And he said, yeah, all you got to do is try out when you get to boot camp. I said, all right, good enough. I'll take it. And so I get to boot camp. They started like to, you talk. had the wrong rating. Yeah, I, I didn't have a SEAL source rating, which I didn't even know what they meant by that. I, I mean, I'm trusting this lieutenant commander that I can go in and still become a SEAL or at least go to Coronado. And I went down there three times. First two times I ran into divers, and there's some pretty serious fellows. I don't care what anybody says. <laughs> Hold on, you divers. Yeah. Yeah. Double, yeah. double Alt Bravo is what it was called in the Army. Well, I can tell you what we call them in the Navy. Fear factor. <laughs> I mean, these guys, I mean, when, when I saw these divers, I figured, oh, they're just divers, right? I tried to talk them into letting me stay to try out. No, they pretty much ran me out of there, told me to go back to my compartment. But the third time they called for uh, SAR, EOD, and SEAL tryouts, man, I was down there so fast, it would have made your head spin. And when I ran up into building 45, I actually ran into somebody. It was not the guy I needed to run into on a good day because when I ran into him, all I saw was black t-shirt, khaki shorts, and a trident on his shirt. And I handed him my folder after he crawled my case for running into him. And uh, he looked at, I mean, he opened it up, closed it, handed it back to me and said, you can go back to your compartment. And I said, wait a minute now. <laughs> I want to, I don't care what you want. Get out of my face with all this complaining and go back to your compartment. I said, and I was a little bit upset to say the least, but I wasn't going to argue with him too much. I knew he had, I knew he had a line. You weren't going to cross it. You know what I mean? But, you know, at that time I was already a first class swimmer. My PG scores were through the roof and I couldn't figure out why they wouldn't even, you know, I even asked him, I said, look, can I just, can't you just give me the chance to show you I'm, you know, I'm capable of doing this? He said, 
I don't care how capable you are, you're not going. And I made it an extra long trip getting back to the compartment because I was a little upset, you know what I mean? And sure enough, he wasn't playing around either because he called my chief before I returned and made sure that my chief knew not to send me back to building 45 for that again. And you don't talk about dejected, man. I had my heart broke. But, uh, yeah, lying people. There was no seal source rating. If I was an organizational level technician, I could have tried out. But instead, they wanted to make me a brainiac and put me in intermediate level, which the Army doesn't even have. Did you know that? Uh, I know for the communications, we have a – let's see, what was it? I was – and at the time, it was called 31 Romeo, which – uh, they don't have now. Let me see. 31 Sierra was satellite comms. I'm trying to remember what the identifier was for like radio repair. I can't remember, but you know, and I don't no, know. No, y'all did that. have y'all did have an intermediate repair group in the army at the time I went in the army. But as far as intermediate radar technicians, there weren't any army. Yeah. They found well uh, civilian contractors to do what I was doing in the Navy. And you're not going to find uh, depot-level technicians in the military period. Those are your engineers and things like that. You know, we got – in what I did in the Navy, we we did the troubleshooting repair down to component level. And then after that, there's nobody in the military that does that. So, you know – Yeah, I can only do troubleshoot and sign, fill out a work order and turn it into a shop. That was all I could do. Well, that was all I could do when I got in the army because I didn't have an intermediate level technician, you know. Yeah, we had that techs time. that we did have techs at Fort Bragg that fixed mm-hmm. our stuff. We had a comm shop and they actually they did repairs there at Fort Bragg. Right. Uh but you know, I mean like I mean, well, you know, I, I was oh no, you were calm, so I, I was gonna say I worked with some of you guys, but that unit that I was in you know where those choppers came from. Those were those were the 18th Air Corps choppers, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, all the maintenance guys that worked on those choppers, if they didn't get out of the Army, they followed the choppers to the unit that I was in, the National Guard. And those those choppers, I don't remember exactly why they said they got – they didn't really get decommed, but after that deal over in Somalia, the thing they made yeah. Blackhawk down about, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of rearranging after that, and I I don't know all the inside details, but I did get to work with a lot of guys from the 18th Air Corps. Yeah, and see, I, I had uh like when I went in, they were because I wanted infantry, and my recruiter said, oh, you know, in the movies, the guy with the infantry, but he got a radio on his back. That's what you'll be doing. And then when <laughs> I got to AIT, and we started actually first time using the equipment because you know we mm-hmm. had because I had a very long AIT. I mean, it was pretty long, and uh. Not as long as mine. <laughs> well, I mean, it was one of the longer course, ones in the army. Comms, uh, yeah. And oh yeah, uh, I mean, other than psyops or military intelligence, shit like that. But because I didn't have to go through linguist school and none of that crap. But anyway, yeah. And I get to AIT and we do our cl- our class work. I don't even remember how long we were in there before we got into a shelter. And they walked us up to the row of shelters. And they were like, these things fit on the back of Humvees. And I'm like, I ain't putting that in my Alice pack, man. I ain't doing it. 
I mean, big old freaking shelter. You can stand upright in the son of a bitch. I'm like, what? He told me I'd have a radio in my on my back and I'd be with the infantry. Well, that's why when I got to brag and I saw that collapsible antenna, I was like, man, what is that? Oh, you don't want to do that. Why not? Facts. Oh, they move. They move with the infantry. Sign me up, man. <laughs> Believe me, I'm in. That's I'm what in you com- wanted. <laughs> yeah, I'm in comms. I'm forced to be here in a way. I was lied to to be here. You know, right. I wanted to be infantry. I I don't want to be over here. I mean, and look, I'm not gonna lie. These I had no idea, you know, you think about communications, you think a bunch of damn geeky Radio. nerds. No, man, I got a lot of respect for what you guys did because when I went in the army and saw what you did, I was like, oh, man, no, man, crazy these comms, as hell. <laughs> these, these comms guys, man, they're, you they out, are, uh, you go out before a, the scouts. <laughs> oh, you're out there with, yeah, you're out there even before water purification. I mean, you're, you don't you're have out there a first. perimeter either. I mean, it's you and maybe what one or two other guys. That's it. Well, it depends on what, like, you have a node, and you've got, uh, they had, I was in a node platoon. They had CCP platoon, which was uh, the higher echelon. Chinese Communist Party? No, it was a (laughs) CCP platoon was the one that they handled, uh, like, nodes are, okay, I can't remember what the hell they were called, uh, but it was the main nucleus of the network, okay? Right. And then the... Each team had three trucks. Two of them had shelters. The other truck uh, had a support trailer with it. Each shelter took a generator, so they had their own power sources and all that shit. But anyway, uh, the node platoon was made up of smaller fractions. Uh, CCP was kind of like headquarters. That was where the main echelon was from the company. And then the node platoon went pushed out further from the ccp head or the headquarters area they helped establish the rest of a broader network for communications on that theater or in that battle area all right so what happened with me was i was in what they called a row a remote access unit that provided basically uh it was it's basically like a link from one section to the next well, in, in the military at that time, because cell phones, that's my shelter basically provided cell service. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, my, and a my lot shelter, of cigarettes. Oh, yeah. But my shelter <laughs> typically, we jump site sometimes two, three times a night. You know, we'd have to bounce. Yep. We would have to go wherever the unit we were supporting was going. So that way they always had comms. Okay, now, I mean, you're putting up two 15-meter masts every freaking time you set up. You're putting up omnidirectional antennas. You're putting up FM antennas. You're having to camo your whole site. You're having to do everything, man. And I still don't know if the standard, which the standard was set from my team, particularly me, Romero, and uh, who else was on that team? Well, anyway, I, As I recall Romero. y'all had set some kind of record that um, far well, exceeded it, what the army standard was. Well, yeah, but the that unit, the 82nd Signal Battalion, mm-hmm. they set the standard for communications army wide. Yeah, right. and our team set 
the new standard. I mean, right. we, we set up two 15 meters, one omnidirectional, and then our FM plus had our entire site camouflaged and we had a link in right. quicker than anything. I mean, we were, we were fat. We were beasts, man. We were beasts. Well, y'all cut the time in almost half if I remember, almost half compared you know, well, it took like five minutes off of it or seven minutes. Yeah. I can't remember. It was pretty it was impressive. a staggering amount. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, see those, those guys in the signal battalion, I mean, they are beasts, man. I'm not gonna lie. They're, they're some hard chargers, but oh, yeah. when you did what I did, the tax at, see, they had a, a small unit based out of headquarters in the battalion called the assault CP and the assault CP is like special forces out of the communications because they're on call 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And they get sent with, I mean, special forces, they get sent with, I mean, any and everybody. Whoever needs them. Yeah. Yeah. And they're always out there period. And they tried to recruit me and I was like, no, nah, cause you know, I had a kid. I was like, I don't want to be on call that much. I'm already deployed 10 and a half. Now, I should say you were gone almost a whole year already. Why didn't you take it? <laughs> well, I know, but also I could see breakdowns in my marriage and I was trying not to be gone more than that, you know? And, uh, right. but you know, when I got over with the infantry and started doing tax at, I mean, Oh, I became the scout, but the scout unit, man, I was their little, I was their prized possession, man. I mean, they loved me to death. I said, you brought that up. Um, and while we're on that topic, you were not a tax that trained operator. Uh, I got went, my training at Fort Bragg. Yeah. I was, I was trained right. to operate inside of a dang switch. Yeah. Yeah. I Go, was not build up of that right there because I always thought that was, uh, very interesting how you ended up in that situation anyway when you started moving with the scouts and none of those guys knew how to use a radio yeah i mean well see that was another thing because see i had to carry what they called an ancd a lot of people are familiar more with the term kick 13 and what it is is uh the encryption carrying device that's how you load it up into your radios right and you know the ancd the reason i had to carry it was because the kick the kick 13 would only hold so many encryption keys and mm -hmm. the ANCD would hold almost all of them. I mean, I had, I mean, it, pending the mission because we were always unsupported. The only thing the scout unit had was that tax sat, that satellite radio. I mean, there was no sat phone at the time with us. And if we needed a, I mean, be resupplied or if we needed to get out of there because we were always supported by the pathfinder element which was the aviation element and yeah. uh so our only contact with the main echelons of that theater was or that operation was satellite so they had to equip me with every key possible because if a key was compromised you know you had, then to, they had to they had to give me another key well yeah. Anyway, yeah, my scout unit, because, you know, uh, my training was to operate in a switch, which came with literally uh, basically switchboard. You had trunk devices in there. You had a trunking system. You had a uh, encryption device. There were so many things that were that made up one switch. And uh, and like I said, one part of a switch is comprised of two magnesium shelters that are right around on the back of a Humvee. Well, when I got my 
tag set training. I got it from a specific sergeant in my unit, and it's just one small radio and a collapsible antenna. Well, I get down to my unit down there to the scouts, and I'd probably pull, I don't know, three, four exercises with them. And I asked my lieutenant, I was like, sir, I said, does anybody here know how to work this radio? And he was like, no. And part of the reason was they didn't have the clearances to obtain the radio or to handle the encryption. You know, most infantry units, their encryption is handled by a comms guy. You know, when they get into the theater, they'll take their radios. <coughs> there'll be a comm unit there. And they'll go load all the radios for the infantry. Okay. So you got to right. have a, a clearance to even handle the ComSec. <clears throat> well, that's because of the codes, I'm assuming. Well, yeah, all of the encryption was, yeah, you, you just got to have a clearance to obtain mm -hmm. it. And uh, well, because the encryption codes that we used were the same encryption codes that were used in real world. So it wasn't. You know, it's not like two sets of keys, you know, the encryption codes or anyway. So when I asked my lieutenant, I asked him and mind you, he was a, he was a airborne ranger and SF. He was a badass. I mean, this guy was, and I asked him, I said, sir, I said, does anybody else in this unit, uh, know how to utilize this radio? And he said, nah, I said, do you mind if I hold some classes and teach everybody? I mean, which there was only five of us, you know? Well, five yeah. of them and then me, so six total. Right. And he, said, he looked at me all funny, and I said, well, sir, if I go down. Who's going to communicate? Who, yeah, because everything dealing with your survival is based on this radio. So if I go down, who's going to be able to bring it up? And uh, so he allowed me so many hours, you know, and I taught the scout unit how to use the tax app. And due to my efforts in that, as far as I understand, even to a few years after my having gotten out, because I stayed in touch with some people, the second of 325 Scouts never had another communication guy. I was the last one. Well, there he is, folks. Another episode in the history of us. Hope you had a good time today. Hope you learned a little something. Think of a man, my brother. We did have fun, and it was quite relaxing. Thank you very much. Don't forget to comment in the section below, and we are on all your favorite podcast channels. And on behalf of Patrick and myself, we are the Constitution Commandos, signing out. <laughs>